Hi, I'm Jod Foster. Hi, I'm Josh White. And this is Left to Burn, the podcast of thebattleground.eu. Answer me this question. What is wrong with Paul Mason? At this point, the question is, what isn't wrong with Paul Mason? I think there was always something a bit odd about the guy, but he had a period, a grace period, let's say, where he did a lot of good in terms of coverage and promotional work and support for the Labour left. Those days are very much over. He's not only become a Starmer supporter in a very big way, but he's ended up apparently kind of conniving and plotting against leftists he doesn't like. Again, it depends what you make of the Grey Zone coverage of this, the story written in quite a paranoid way, <laughs> suggesting that he has links to the intelligence services and so on. That I'm very sceptical of. Yeah, I, I mean, I thought Post-Capitalism was actually a pretty good book. Just seems like every time I see his name coming up in any kind of left of the spectrum media, it's always Owen Jones hammering him or one of the Jacobin people hammering him. So you would think that one thing that leftists could all get together on was that Keir Starmer is terrible. Why should that be a, a, a point of debate since essentially he's decided that the Labour Party is just going to be the Tory party light? Yeah, Paul Mason... He drank the Kool-Aid. He had his wallet inspected. There were many metaphors on this. He fell for Starmer early on, and out of perhaps his own need to remain relevant with Labour politics and the leadership, he became an avid supporter and tried to justify it in leftist terms, and still does try to. But at this point, it's just beyond a joke. But this latest scandal or fiasco or whatever you want to call it is the new low. If you don't know the story, Grey Zone published an article detailing private emails from Mason to several other people, which seem to suggest he has it in for Grey Zone and a number of other left-wing outlets and organisations and individuals, including a very bizarre chart, a kind of Glenn Beck-esque map, you know, black with white names and links between them. Corbyn being on there, Aaron Bastani's outlet, Navarra Media is on there, Stop the War, but ironically not Owen Jones, which is interesting and amusing. Yeah, given that Owen Jones just hammers him all the time. I only sort of follow what Owen Jones has to say. I mean, Owen Jones seems like a, a nice guy and he has a lot of interesting stuff to say, but I just don't follow the ins and outs of the high school musical British leftist politics. Like that scene in the beginning of The Life of Brian when they're all in the Coliseum or whatever watching the chariot races and they're calling the one other guy Splitter. That was Monty Python's joke about the British left to begin with, but it doesn't seem like it's really changed a great deal, honestly. It's very, it's very true still, sadly. And, and Mason comes out of that world. He was, a, he was a Trotskyist in the 70s and 80s. He was a member of Workers' Power, which itself split from, I think, Workers' Fight, which split from the International Socialists. Again, there are probably other splits that I'm missing. They were one of the entryist organisations that went into the Labour Party, I think, or at least under Corbyn they did so. Not to be overplayed, of course, the number of trots in the country is probably less than 5,000 people. Right, and about 4,500 Trotskyist organisations. Anyway, from the ridiculous to the alternatively ridiculous, it seems that Boris Johnson has survived a no-confidence vote in the week just passed. What's going on with that? He survived the confidence vote, but he's wounded. That's fair to say. Uh, the Tory rebels, so-called, are a very significant force right now. He won by a lower margin than Theresa May won her confidence vote in 2018, if my memory serves me right. And this puts him in a very weak spot with his own party. It means that he's going to be basically throwing not just red meat, but probably live cows at his backbenchers for the next six months at least. 
And there's even talk of the Tory party rewriting the rules so they can challenge him again this year, which is unheard of, I think. But we should also bear in mind that he does command a certain amount of loyalty. It's just dwindling. And the loyalty is based on the fact that he won this huge majority in 2019. The first major majority the Tories have won in 30 years, I think. Yeah, it seems like he's been boggling ever since the whole party gate thing. That seems to have quieted down somewhat. It was one of those things that happens in the politics of mass democracies where people get really upset about something and then they have an investigation about it. And it turned out that a lot of what people had said had been going on, like drunken parties during the lockdown period, had actually been going on. And the ultimate takeaway from the investigation was, yeah, that was a thing that happened. Okay. Yeah, pretty much. There's a kind of shrug at a lot of this by the media and by a lot of observers. Although there is also a lot of outrage. There's a lot of cynicism about all of this. For a while, it looked like they might get away with it especially because of the Ukraine war, that really kind of shifted things in Boris's favour, because it really looked like he was in a desperate spot in February, and then the war happened. And he, of course, jumped on the war as an opportunity. He flew to Ukraine and met with Zelensky, and he's been sending arms and so on. But even this might not save him, because it seems like there's so much antipathy and hostility towards him in the country that it is bubbling through to the Tory MPs, and they are responding in kind because they fear that they will lose seats. There's a lot of talk in the media. I read four or five stories this morning about major Tory donors saying that there has to be some sort of change of direction. I'm not exactly sure what kind of change of direction you could have with Boris Johnson. And he's kind of like Trump in the respect that he's a sort of one-trick pony. I sometimes feel like he's a sort of down-market version of Trump, or he's a version of Trump specially reconfigured for the UK, where different kinds of social power. You don't quite have the same middle American radicalism thing, but you do have that kind of middle class upset, highly nationalist that's willing to see someone like Johnson, who's very different than most of those people. I mean, he's public school, laddish, whatever. He exerts a kind of leadership without being like those people. They seem to like him nonetheless, but he seems to have one thing that he does. I'm not exactly sure what Tory donors would want, aside from somebody else. But really, for the Tory party right at this moment, where does that go? Who else is there? I mean, the the contradiction here is that the Tory donors would be happy with a return to the Dave Cameron days. And they'd be quite happy to have someone like Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss coming in, or Jeremy Hunt, let's say, and basically enacting a lot of privatisation, market reforms, deregulation lower taxes and so on, more austerity, albeit with a liberal gloss, a liberal centrist gloss to it all. But the problem is, is that that moment has passed in many ways, not least because of Brexit, COVID-19. We have the supply chain crisis feeding into all of this, climate change, you have the Ukraine war. So there's a kind of economic populism that has to be used to win votes, ultimately, if the Tories want to stay in power. So on the one hand, the Johnson agenda or strategy of populism although it's not really delivered, was very popular in 2019. But it's been brought down by the COVID crisis, really, like so much else. Have the supply chain effects from Brexit resolved themselves? Are they still as bad as they were, it seemed like, six months ago? It's still, it's still playing out, I think. And, and it's hard to read exactly the causes of all of this because there's just a generalised picture. You have rising inflation. We've had some shortages 
the shortages aren't as bad as they were, but we have much higher inflation. We have a shortage of labour. We're, we're facing a major national train strike at the moment. But the supply chain crisis, there's a global supply chain crisis that will be in the background of all of this. Brexit is just a part of that. It's connected to climate change as well. It's connected to the Ukraine war. All of it just amounts to higher costs for most working people. Yeah. Speaking of the knock-on effects of Brexit, I was just reading the other day that the British government is about to issue some new guidance or a new ruling about the protocol in Northern Ireland. And this is uh, deepening the problems there. I mean, already Northern Ireland has political problems in the sense that in the most recent election, the SDLP and the DUP, and to a lesser extent, the UUP, all lost votes to the alliance, which is the sort of middle of the road, mostly associated with the nationalist community mostly associated with the eastern part of the country. And now Sinn Féin is no longer the... I think Sinn Féin is now the majority party and could form a government, maybe with the alliance, although I think that the DUP has said that they will not participate in a Northern Ireland government in which Sinn Féin is the majority party. But another dimension of this is that the DUP, the loyalist community, such as it is, is also up in arms about the protocol because they see the protocol as a weakening of the connection between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom. So now the Johnson government is in the position of saying, well, we've had some legal advice about this fix that we're about to announce. I think they were supposed to announce it last week. I think the new theory is it's, they're going to announce it on Monday. They won't say what the legal advice they've had is, except they've, they've been assured that it's consonant with international law. But the, you know, the problem is that they've, they're trying to satisfy two constituencies here that have diametrically opposing interests. That is to say, the loyalist community on the one hand, which, as usual, they seem beholden to in some sort of almost inexplicable way. I mean, the, the fact that the, the power that the loyalist faction in Northern Ireland has exerted over particularly the Tory party for a century is defies rational explanation in a lot of ways. But also, then you have the EU who have frozen the court cases against the UK in terms of violations of trade regulations. And they've said that if this new take on the protocol isn't consonant with the Brexit treaty, the EU has basically said that if the, if the new amendment to the Brexit arrangements isn't consonant with their rules, that they'll unfreeze these proceedings. And the problem for the Johnson government is that they don't. The EU has what the, the British economy needs, and the British economy doesn't really have that much necessarily that the EU actually needs. The Tories have actually, you know, they've shown a lot of disregard for Northern Irish uh, politicians, whether they're unionist or not. And that's why they went for the sea border option as part of the protocol initially. Although that may have been purely for cynical reasons. They may have just signed off on that to get Brexit done, quote unquote, knowing that they would backtrack further down the road. And this is them backtracking. The other aspect could well be the supply chain question. It's a complication if you want to get goods through that border now. But that's not going to be lessened by moving that border onto the island of Ireland. That border is notoriously difficult to regulate, not least because it goes through people's homes, communities, through the middle of roads. It's going to be very difficult to regulate any of this. And that's why some kind of deal that encompassed the whole of Ireland 
all the whole of Ireland and the UK, then that would have been a, a much better deal. But that ship has sailed, and here we are, and the Tories are now doing this. Because, again, they have a, they have total disregard for international law. They don't really care about things like the Good Friday Agreement. They're willing to risk, risk it all for electoral purposes right now. I think, too, at this point, the, the situation has been made more intense, if you will, by developments in the Republic of Ireland, where, uh, for the first time ever, Sinn Féin has gone from being a marginal party to the second largest party in the Doyle. So now you have the situation where basically the two main parties heretofore, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, have essentially said that they'll never, that they'll never form a coalition involving Sinn Féin. Irish politics is so weird from the perspective of not only from the United States, but also in a lot of respect from the perspective of the rest of Great Britain, that Fine Gael is the group of notables or the sort of had its basis in the group of notables that were the sort of pro-treaty rump of the IRA after the 1921 war and the, the sort of civil war that followed it. So now what you have is two parties that don't, that are more sort of groups of notables rather than parties that are distinguished by a sort of bright line ideological difference. And then you have Sinn Féin, which has kind of repurposed itself. I mean, if you look at the sort of long history of the IRA, their, their politics for the vast majority of their existence were pretty reactionary. They've now reconfigured themselves as a kind of party of the progressive left. And they've achieved a sort of a significance both on both sides of the border. And this is the kind of thing that has to make unionist politicians very nervous, especially because the demographic changes happening in Northern Ireland now. The, the nationalist population is a lot closer to parity with the so-called loyalist population. And so does this mean that a united Ireland is on the horizon? Probably not. I mean, the, the situation is very complicated and it's not entirely clear that all the people in Northern Ireland who are not supporters of the unionists are not by the same token supporters of a united Ireland necessarily, but it's made the politics of the border even more fraught and complicated than they had been to this point, which they already were very much. And the, the whole Brexit thing plays into that complex, that complex of forces, which has its effects not only in the politics on both sides of the Irish border, but also across the Irish Sea, because now, I mean, the one thing that British politicians have always wanted out of Ireland is for it to go away. The last thing that politicians in either of the major parties in the UK want for anything to happen in Ireland, because there's just no good thing that comes out of it for them politically. And the more powerful Sinn Féin becomes on both sides of the, of the border in Ireland, the greater the chance that further things are going to arise. And it doesn't really matter what they are. There is no positive outcome from the perspective of either the Tories or the Labour Party of issues in Ireland becoming more prominent or becoming more troublesome. Indeed, yeah. Because, you know, they've established the sea border and it's already generated a crisis in Stormont where the DUP is refusing to form a government um, and is effectively paralysing politics in Northern Ireland. And, and that's been going on long before this last election. And they're facing a challenge from a more hardline version of loyalism at the same time as a result. 
but the Republican stroke Nationalist Party Sinn Féin has, has reached uh, the highest point of influence in its history in, in Northern Ireland. Um, as you said before, largest party, able to not just form a government but lead it. Um, it just needs the DUP to consent to that. But if the Tories get away with what they're doing, which they most likely will, they'll get rid of the seaboard and move it inland. That's not going to kill off republicanism. It's going to do quite the opposite, probably. It may mean that the DUP will be willing to go back into government, but what kind of government will it be? Sinn Féin may refuse to participate. And if they don't, they can lead the government they're entitled to. I mean, this is the interesting, the interesting thing about Northern Irish elections that happened on the, on the 5th of May is that Sinn Féin, their vote didn't increase. It's exactly, they got exactly the same proportion that they, that they did before. I think it's just about 28%, which meant they got 27 seats in Stormont. What really happened was that the alliance increased its vote by 4.5% or so, which meant that they gained nine seats. And I think the alliance is an interesting phenomenon in Northern Irish politics in the sense that it's not strongly sectarian either way. And I think in a lot of ways, the rising popularity of the alliance is an illustration of younger people in Northern Ireland just being less interested in either side of the whole nationalist versus loyalist debate. I mean, I think that I think within the within the so-called loyalist community, there's a lot less interest among younger people in that Ulster will fight, Ulster will be right rhetoric that for so long could just sort of carry along politics in a certain way. And I think also on the on the sort of the so-called nationalist or Republican side, there's just a lot less or rather less interest in the the more sectarian aspect of things. Although, once again, it's it's gotten to this level and it's going to stay there. So between between Sinn Féin and the Alliance, that's 44 seats in a 90 seat assembly. So in order for them to to form a majority government, they would need the SDLP. The SDLP is uh, pretty allergic to Sinn Féin uh, for a lot of historical reasons. They currently hold eight seats uh, or they would need, you know, one of the, the unionist parties to flip. That's not going to happen. So what you have is this sort of deadlock in which it's hard to imagine how a majority government gets formed at Stormont under the current circumstances. And then is the answer what the answer has always been in UK politics? That is to say, it shifts from Stormont to Westminster. That's, that's the only solution that's worse than the one that you've got now from the perspective of, of, of English politicians, so to speak. Uh, so the fact that this is happening at the same time, and by the same token, the, the both Sinn Féin and the, the Alliance, whatever else they're for, are for the maintenance of the protocol because a lot of their strength electorally depends on or is, is, is based in people who really want trade with the EU to continue in, a, in an unrestricted way. I mean, this is, I think, something that, that people in their electoral base are a lot more interested in than the sort of, I mean, United Ireland, that's, a, that's an abstraction. And, and it's one of those things that in the old days carried a lot more weight than it does now. I don't really see that there's a lot of people in the sort of center of Northern Irish politics who are like, yeah, we really need to revise the whole border question. The, the border that's, that's 
that's relevant now is the ones the trade border with the EU, not the not the national border with with the Republic to the extent that those two things can be separated. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you've seen a, a change on the Northern Irish left in this regard, the rise of uh, people before profit, for example. They have one one member of the Northern Irish Assembly and their, their whole political agenda is, yeah, it's radical socialist politics, but it's connected to non-sectarian a non-sectarian strategy. One of their slogans is neither orange nor green, but red. Yeah, that's it's one of those things that people have, have tried periodically over the long term in Northern Ireland. But I think it's one of those things that, I mean, okay, so to be clear, uh, they got about one or slightly more than 1% of the vote as yet. But I, I tend to think that as things continue, that position becomes, becomes more attractive, more relevant as people who are younger now, people who didn't grow up in the Troubles, people who aren't sort of strongly emotionally connected to either unionism or nationalism slash republicanism, I think there, there becomes more space for an idea like that. I mean, once again, I would be surprised if the alliance didn't continue to grow for exactly the same reason. That I mean, I think we're coming to a point in Northern Ireland where a lot of the sort of nostrums of Northern Irish politics are going by the wayside in the same way as uh, in the Republic, but for somewhat different reasons. Once again, Sinn Féin for a long time was really a one-trick pony. You know, it's like, let's, let's reunite with the North. Well, people mostly, especially after the 1950s in the Republic, didn't care about that all that much. I mean, that was why... Uh, even when Sinn Féin decided to participate in electoral politics, they were marginal. Now they've gotten into all kinds of, of sort of progressive activism. And here we go. Now people are more interested because they want to get out of the sort of same old structures of Fine Foil versus Fine Gael. Uh, and I think that there's an opening for a politics that's less about these sort of nationalistic old style issues and more about what people's lives are actually about. You know, it's going to be interesting to see how the politics of this change over the next five, ten years uh, as people who don't have that strong emotional connection to the historical issues of Irish history now become an increasingly large part of the Irish electorate. Yeah, and that's one dynamic. I think another part of this, though, that we shouldn't lose sight of is that the border question won't go away. What may be the case is that when the change comes when the referendum finally comes, which I think it probably will at some point um, in the future. We don't know when. Sinn Féin has talked about a five-year time frame for it. I think that's unlikely. But the fact that, that you have this dynamic where there's declining, what should we call it, declining militancy or declining uh, support among either community, it may come down to who is declining faster. And it may be the case that the loyalists are shrinking faster than the nationalists or the republicans. Well, it's going to be interesting to see how this shakes out. I mean, I think there is a transformation going on in the politics of Ireland, as, as there's a transformation going on in the politics of England as well, on slightly different premises. But the, the interesting thing about the transformation of Irish politics is that, once again, it's about the border. It's just the premises of the border issue are, are changing pretty fundamentally. That's a lot to think about. I think that's about as much as we can get to this week. Thanks so much for tuning in, everybody. Thanks for listening. This was Left to Burn.